fundamentally, Maurice, my life has been largely oriented around how can I bring as much meaning as possible to a world that is pretty crazy and do it in a way that is in integrity to my own heart, to what I want to help create in the world and in integrity to what the world needs. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen, an attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast, Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest, who will introduce himself. Bennett, please go ahead. Sure, it's really a delight to be here, Maurice. My name is Barrett Brown, and my background is really been focused for many decades on helping to create a future that works for all. And practically what I mean by that is my commitment has been to working with leaders in government, business, civil society to help them address the most complex challenges that we face economically, socially, environmentally. And so very practically what that looks like is I do strategic planning and implementation for organizations that are focused on having significant impact. I do executive coaching with leaders that are really trying to drive change at scale. And I do team development and leadership development programs to help similar leaders, again, that are really trying to unlock deeper capacities in themselves so that they can more easily navigate the complexity and the uncertainty, and most importantly, cultivate true and authentic impact that helps us to create a, a thriving, flourishing world. And I got into it largely because I wanted to be of service, probably a little bit out of a sense of insecurity that I needed to do something worthwhile in life so that I could feel better about myself. And, but fundamentally just fell in love with the opportunity to be with people and with groups and help them to get clear about who they are, about what matters, and most importantly, how to actually create the impact that they're truly capable of. So my work ranges from, I recently did a project within the ethical artificial intelligence group at Google, hmm. supporting them to make uh, more effective decisions in the face of complexity. And then I'm also working with a national research laboratory called Sandia National Labs here in the United States, which uh, focuses on protecting the world from the dissemination of nuclear weapons and has a large 
satellite system run by the US government that essentially monitors all nuclear weapons. And, and so supporting them essentially in helping to be as impactful as, pos as possible. And then I've done a lot of work over the years with uh, large uh, NGOs that are focused on environmental and social sustainability work like the Nature Conservancy, for many years, I've worked with, with them and Pathfinder International, which is a women's health and reproductive rights organization uh, as well. And so fundamentally, Maurice, my life has been largely oriented around how can I bring as much meaning as possible to a world that is pretty crazy and do it in a way that is in integrity to my own heart, to what I want to help create in the world and in integrity to what the world needs. And so we can talk some more about what all that means and looks like in action. But let me just say it's, it's a delight and honor to, to be here with you. And I've been a fan of your organization and the work that you've been doing for, for quite some time. Uh, thanks for that, uh, Bernard. Can you tell a little bit about um, to the listeners? You know, what did you study, and then how did you roll into this? I mean, you you alluded a little bit to it, but but uh, you know, was there a moment when you were ten years old, or you know, fifteen years old, or you you thought, yeah, take us take us back in terms of where did you sure. grow up, and then where did you study, and then. And an accelerated version, of course. An but, accelerated but, uh, yeah. version, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so uh, moved around a lot as a mm -hmm. kid, uh, lived in uh, New York City and New Mexico and Vermont, but mostly grew up in Vermont until I went to uh, a prep school in, in Massachusetts and then ultimately went on to study engineering and literature at University of California at Santa Cruz and UC Berkeley, and then got into sales and marketing, but that led me down a route of personal development. And at one point I really decided when I was, I took some time off and traveled through Latin America for four months and decided that I wanted to really get involved in supporting human development. And so that opened up a whole pathway of trying to understand how to cultivate adult development. And I ultimately had a period of time where I said, fine, I haven't figured out who I am or how I can really serve. I just had an undergraduate degree and I sold everything. And I moved back to my parents' house in Vermont and I spent a year working through a process in a book called Zen and the Art of Making a Living. And it really took me through a whole suite of exercises. And I was studying yoga and meditating at the time. And I was studying the English language, just trying to support kind of being able to communicate more effectively and went through this process. And at the end of it, came up with the conclusion that there was just a couple of areas that I wanted to work in. And those were either being a transpersonal counseling psychologist and supporting people to kind of make advanced development moves or organization development. Mm -hmm. And so I ultimately chose the organization development route, 
went back and got a master's and a PhD in that from Fielding Graduate University. And my research was on understanding how leaders with very complex worldviews design and engage in complex change initiatives. So I was interested at the intersection of sort of consciousness and complexity. And so after that, it's just been a lot of years of working with leaders and, and organizations and ran a, a organization called the Integral Sustainability Center on the side for about a decade that was focused on the application of the work of an American philosopher that you and I both know and admire named Ken Wilber. And he had developed and synthesized an integral approach. And I applied that to sustainability specifically and supported leaders around the world and, and change agents like yourself to apply his, his work. And, and then in parallel had a career in more mainstream organization development. And so now I work kind of at the intersection of mm. sustainability and human development and uh, mainstream organizational change. Okay. And can you, you know, can you explain maybe to me what for you um, Ken Wilber's theory makes so, um, you know, helpful and, and rich in, you know, what you're trying to do is, as an individual, but then also, you know, in your work as well? So I'm much more of an in-practice guy. I have mm -hmm. not a lot of tolerance with theory if it's not really of service. Mm -hmm. As I think Gandhi said something along the lines of, you know, look around you and what you're doing and is it helping the poorest person on the planet? And if not so, you know, question that in service of adapting what you're doing to actually make a difference. And so that all being said, the practical stuff that I found useful in Ken Wilber's work was that he brought together work that of course had been identified over hundreds and even thousands of years around how to make sense of the world around us and where really are the big forces and dynamics at play that are influencing us and keeping us from having real impact. And so practically, for example, there's a part of his model is about looking at what's happening at the individual level and at the systems level and at the cultural level. And this is uh, related essentially to the work of Plato and his commitment to the good, the true, and the beautiful. And so that type of broader understanding of what really are the big domains of reality to use a have a, a jargony term, but like where's life actually happening the most? And what's, what's kind of the map of that? that? That was really helpful because very practically when you're trying to cultivate change at scale, mm -hmm. there are drivers and dynamics that are getting in the way and constraints and where are they coming from? And this type of map helps you to identify those and do a holistic systems level view so that you can essentially design interventions that have impact. So that was one aspect of his work that was of deep support. The other one for me is that he brought in a lot of work from adult development and developmental psychology. 
And that was fascinating to me because I was always interested in the higher reaches of human potential and capacity and how to actually accelerate it. And so much my my PhD was in that space. Mm-hmm. And, and there, it turns out there's a lot of things that we can do to access greater capacities of the mind and heart within us that have been mapped out over 125 years by developmental psychologists. And so much of my work is actually about applying that in action so that leaders are smarter, wiser, more compassionate, and better able to sense into complex environments and uh, to to guide and co-lead with people through these times of really unprecedented chaos and wildness. Um, how you know you at, at present you your you have your own consultancy company right and, and how many people are working there? It's I lead a platform right now which is mm-hmm. called Athena Advisory. Okay, and I have a number of colleagues that are partnered with me on it, mm-hmm. and it's 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 intentionally small in service mm-hmm. of being able to choose the work that I want to do. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes the work that we do is uh, can be done by a few few number of people. You know, we helped Google, for example, to scale across the Americas and Europe and Asia mm-hmm. with uh, just a few of us. And so the organization, and then in parallel, what I do is I also partner with other organizations. Mm-hmm. So I work with a really quite impressive organization called Dynamic Results as well. Mm-hmm. And another one called Mobius Leadership, and another one called uh, the the Full Circle Group, and these are all the organizations that are also involved in large organizations and committed to cultivating real real change that matters, and is moving these organizations toward being uh, much more fundamentally effective in helping society to 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 grow toward the future that we have the true potential of hmm. um and and you know i will make sure that he you know put the links in in the podcast notes so that uh, folks can you know find you and as well as your uh, materials and, and, the, and the books that you've written um, I, I have to make a remark about, you know, for the, for the listeners about the, the birds that we hear in the in the background, <laughs> and 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 it, why it extra speaks to me, uh, Barrett, is that you know last last week uh, or two weeks ago I spoke with Johnny Eimerman, and he's a uh, the founder of an organization called Eimerman Angels, and also of Close Talk, and he's you know based in New York, and. The whole, almost the whole episode, you hear the the police sirens going off, and and <laughs> this is so serene, you know, at the moment. So this is really night and day. So I, if Johnny is listening, you will really appreciate my call here. Yeah, so, um, hey, um, I am. I mean, just so that listen, those yes, these are, these are Hawaiian birds. We 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 live on the island of Oahu. Yeah, great. I, I'm so jealous. Um, well, come on out. We we'd happy to have you here. I will try to do my best. I will try to do my best. Yeah. Um, 
Barrett, you, you know that uh, I explained to you um, that this podcast is a spin-off of, of my 100-mile walk where I try to raise awareness and funds for poverty, hunger, and, and injustice. Yeah, I, I would like to ask you, you know, if you would be asked to walk uh, 100 miles in a week, so 15, 20 to 20 miles per day, why would you walk? I would walk in service of healing trauma. One of the things, Maurice, that I've come to understand as I've delved into the challenge of humanity trying to create a world that works for all is that many of the things that truly hold us back are within ourselves. And it's not necessarily about people breaking through into some kind of unity consciousness that allows them to truly see themselves as the other person. It's often about actually being able to not be overwhelmed by the voices of their parents in their head or the fear that they operate from based upon early decisions that they've made in their life about how to take care of themselves that come from adverse childhood experiences. So very practically, according to the research done by Kaiser Medical Foundation across thousands of adults, 67% of adults have at least one adverse childhood experience. And your readers can go to online and look up the ACE assessment, A-C-E, which stands for adverse childhood experience and evaluate whether or not they've got one of these major experiences, which is kind of capital T trauma. So 67% of adults. And then 40% of those people have at least two adverse childhood experiences. And these are things like a divorce or having an alcoholic in the home or someone going to jail or you know being hungry at some point or and so, you know, really major impactful dynamics in people's lives that are often not uh, understood with respect to the true influences that they have in how people parent, in how they are a partner, their significant other, in how they lead, and in how they reflect upon themselves and how they actually treat themselves. And so... The bottom line is that as I have done my own work in this area, because I've got a bunch of these, it turns out, and it's, it, it's, a, it's really like at times shut me down profoundly as I've been trying to do things in life. And I ultimately kind of has, have sourced it to these kind of early traumatic issues in, in my life that have resulted in me, for example, kind of freezing when things get intense and I have to do a lot. My nervous system literally takes over and just shuts me down and I'll distract myself by going and reading the New York Times or I'll, try, I'll distract myself by going and doing simple things like cleaning that basically give me a sense of accomplishment or I'll just collapse in, into bed and just unable to do stuff, right? I remember kind of worked through my PhD program when I lived in the Netherlands and just feeling totally overwhelmed while I was working and I had a young family simultaneously working full-time and needed to you know, 
go through all these academic articles and write something that actually was of value and just, you know, Sundays I would just collapse and just be unable to do it. And my nervous system was like, no, this reminds me too much of the intensity of when I was a kid. This is what I did as a kid was I would just go to sleep to not hear sort of the screaming and shouting that was happening in the house. And that um, that's really tough stuff to overcome. And so we can talk more about like practically what works with respect to that that I found. But the bottom line is that as a result of me doing my own inquiry in that area, I am now much more easily able to notice that other leaders have that when I'm working with them and support them to really uh, engage in development that helps them to unlock some of those deep and early constraints. In fact, practically in a number of my executive coaching engagements recently, we will in parallel contract for them to be working with a therapist or to be working with a somatic professional that mm. helps to kind of unlock that stuff at a nervous system level because i can i can tell it's there and we talk about it and it's like yeah this, this is if, if we're going to really accomplish the goals that you're after yes we'll do executive coaching as part of that and you will make a lot of progress if you also do this side work that is more therapeutic in nature. And so for sure, if I were to walk hundred miles, it would be in honor of the suffering and pain that so many people hold inside themselves that is, um, that's, that's true trauma. And whether it's capital T trauma, big events or little T trauma, where we're just contracted and contorted and uh, aren't oftentimes bringing as much sort of self-compassion toward ourselves about really the how kind of gnarly and complex that stuff is. And it's, you know, in my case, I kind of beat myself up uh, for not making progress on it. And then I'm critical toward others because I'm critical toward myself. And, you know, we tend to, if we're in leadership roles or parenting roles, you know, we tend to lead or parent others the way that we lead ourselves, right? And so that leaves a lot of room for, for growth and development. If you know, we're bumping up against our own stuff, we tend to project that out into the world around us, onto our significant others or our children or those that we are have a responsibility and opportunity to partner with to create something bigger. So, a lot of work to be done in that area, and it's yeah. definitely a mile walk. Hmm. <laughs> no, thanks. And and but it has hard work, right? And and it and I, I um and it's also something that you know, okay, you do that for a week or you do that for two weeks, and then you're done with it. I mean, it's something that people have to include, making part of their life for the, yep. for the rest of their life, right? I mean, it, yep. it, it's it comes and goes. I I, I assume so. It it's it's and like I'll say that, like there's some advances in in treatment that actually really mm -hmm. accelerate development in the area. Yeah, it's it, it it's a longitudinal play. Like it's yeah. part of the inner landscape that's not necessarily going to go away, but our relationship to those. 
dynamics uh, can can change. But I, I interrupted you, so please continue. Yeah, I, I was thinking, is it similar to, you know, um, you know, to walking or running, uh, right? So if you don't do that, then you need to train again. You need to get back. So you need to, it's muscles. So you need mm -hmm. to uh, ensure that you stay fit uh, so that you can, you know, continue to, to deal with it. Um, so that's one question that I have for you. So, you know, it, it needs to, you know, even if you, if you provide the tools to somebody you work with or for yourself, um, yeah, do you need to continuously um, work on it so that it doesn't come back? So that's one. And then second is, does it get more difficult the older you get? Um, and I'm there. I'm comparing it to, you know, to you know, it takes forever for me to get fit to play a, a soccer game again. Um, mm -hmm. And then I'm fit, and then I don't go for two weeks for whatever reason, and then it takes me six weeks to to get back in shape. So is that is that similar on on, on the on this trauma level, or or um, or am I off? No, I don't think that you're off. I think that oftentimes people finally engage in addressing the trauma that they have because of some sort of crisis. In my line of work, people tend to only be willing to do the deep work when they either have a burning platform from which they need to jump because life has just all of a sudden gotten too painful, they have to do something about it or they have a burning vision toward which they want to move. And anything in between there typically tends not to be enough motivation and fuel to drive and cultivate the change that's required. And so you get you can get incremental change, but not truly transformational change. And trauma work is, is absolutely transformational change. So Yes, it's ideal if you can be kind of keeping yourself fit and, and, and ahead of the game, and that would be the uh, inspired by a, a burning vision to really bring forth your deepest capacities so that you can be capable of addressing increasingly complex challenges ahead of you. Uh, super small percentage of people, I think, actually pull that off. I think most people that end up working on trauma stuff come out of it because, you know, it, they got a divorce or the, and it ended up being driven by their own stuff or they, you know, lost a, a uh, kind of a, you know, a big thing happened in their career or they just noticed that they're all of a sudden just depressed and unable to move forward on things. And so, and, and they just want a different life. And finally they, 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 they give in. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert on, helping people to stay motivated to run or walk or, or take care of themselves. Uh, I just know that it, it does come, uh, that the fuel is there when the pain is big enough. And nobody wants that for anybody, uh, but that life does tend to create the conditions where either we face the pain in our life uh, that we have generated for the best of reasons and oftentimes inadvertently due to situations that we happen to be in uh, but it's there and mm -hmm. so we either face it or we ignore it and turn to things like alcohol or or porn or drugs or uh even distractions yeah. 
like uh, working a lot um, to help us not be face-to-face uh, -face with the, the pain of the silence within us that's there when we actually stop and get quiet. Hmm. And, um, you know, all of those addictions actually are the, the solution to the problem, meaning when someone turns to, to alcohol or drugs to make the pain go away, it's not that it's not that it's the, the problem is the addiction. Um, the addiction is actually the solution to the pain in their nervous system. And it's what their nervous system is doing to relax, to escape from the pain. And that's what these addictive spaces kind of create for us are these momentary periods where we can finally kind of escape how how tough it is inside when you stop and be quiet inside and really sense what's going on. And so anyway, that type of reframing has been helpful for people that I've worked with. I, I really appreciate you sharing that and lifting that up. And I, I think, you know, the last two years and especially for people living in the West, uh, you know, less um, uh, who have less experience than, you know, people in, in the, you know, in the, in the low income and middle income countries having to deal with stress, you know, because, yeah, we have ex the access to basic needs is, is more available. I'm not saying everybody has it, but, uh, uh, but COVID has definitely made that, um, yeah, that, you know, um, traumatic grief, uh, all those experiences, and, and you see that in, in our society. And I, I, I think what you explained is, is really, hopefully, uh, will be of help uh, for the people who are listening. Um, Barrett, when, when we walk, um, or when I walk with some, someone, very often we also talk about spirituality and, and religion. And then we very quickly talk about the younger generation. And, you know, some of my co-workers say, oh, you know, the next, this younger generation, they experience religion and spirituality differently. Um, and others say, no, it's very similar. You know, they might go less to church, you know, so institutionalization of, of uh, religion and spirituality might be different. And anyway, so I, my question to you is, what do you see happening among your in your community among the younger generation in relation to religion and spirituality? Amongst a, the younger generation, I see a increased flexibility of mind and heart. And I think that's necessary because much of sort of spiritual inquiry comes down to letting go of our beliefs and trusting in something bigger than us. And so, you know, it shows up with the rise of, you know, cancel culture, the rise of a more postmodern deconstructive approach where people are authentically tuning into the insensitivities of the modern world. 
and how people are getting left behind and how there's injustice and how there's environmental destruction. And like all of that stuff really matters to a expanded sense of self. And I mean, we care about what's happening in Indonesia and in Sudan and in Ukraine. And that authentic care that's arising is an indication of a deeper spirituality and how people express it and explore it. Of course, you know, we've never before had as much opportunity to draw upon the world's wisdom traditions ranging from, you know, Buddhism to Hinduism to Taoism to Christianity and Judaism. And, and so there's a, and, and, and the shamanic work and, and the indigenous work is just like, it's, it's, it's all accessible now. So people have an opportunity to find a pathway that is right for them at this time, and then to shift onto something else that's right for them later. And that's uh, quite, quite exciting and confusing, of course. But I'm, I'm fundamentally deeply grateful uh, about what I see out there with respect to the way that youth are challenging the structures of society, challenging the assumptions that, that we have, and driving organizations to be increasingly sensitized. And that, that matters. Are some of the things that you worry about uh, at the moment? There are a lot of things that I'm paying attention to and that I am concerned about going forward. One is the use of nuclear weapons. And I work actually with a national lab in New Mexico as one of the clients that I co-lead engagements with and we do strategic planning and execution and team development, leadership development with them. And their, their responsibility literally is monitoring the global satellites that are watching nuclear weapons. And then they have the whole ground systems that are processing terabytes of data every minute and or every second actually. And then getting that information directly to US decision makers. And so they're very, very concerned currently. I have zero level of classification, right? So I'm not involved in those conversations. But working with them, it's clear that there's a lot of activity, a lot of concern. And, you know, we're just in a very strange situation right now where the a leader in the world that has the most nuclear weapons uh, and has not paid attention to the nuclear arms treaties is kind of going off the, you know, going, going crazy in a lot of ways. And so that's top of mind currently. And then just the idea of that expanding into really a global conflagration, you know, with China and North Korea and Iran and Russia being allied against forces in the West, it's just, just a horrible idea, right? I just, I, sometimes I wish I could fast forward in humanity's timeline to a period when we actually 
I've figured out how to uh, ensure that everybody is fed, ensure that the environment's taken care of, to stop fighting with each other, and all of the qualities of a you know the future that we all really want together. And nonetheless, this is our current challenge. Other things that I'm paying attention to is our developments in the AI space. So there's an awful lot of really fascinating research being done around machine learning and artificial intelligence. And like any tool that can be used as a weapon. And so I'm concerned about competing AIs. I'm concerned about the fact that AIs are building AIs right now. And we actually don't, no one truly understands all of the algorithms and coding that's being done. And that there, the speed with which an AI can replicate and develop itself is unprecedented. It's it's a it's a geometric x curve that uh, the, the acceleration with which it can build its own capability in theoretically at this point is it, it, just phenomenal. And so there's a really powerful book called Super Intelligence by Nick Bostrom that basically says that we've got one chance to get AI right and to build into it the necessary coding that would essentially instill a sense of morals. And that if we don't, then there's basically no limits to, to what, it, what it could become. And he advocates that it's, it's a worse threat to humanity's future than nuclear weapons. So that also falls into kind of the area of, that I'm concerned about, but have zero control or influence over. And then other things that I pay attention to are really just pol political divisiveness, especially here in the United States, but, but globally we're, we're seeing it and just the, the breakdown of civility, the breakdown of alignment, the, the breakdown of compromise. And we are in, uncharted territories. And, and I remember years ago seeing these prognostications of the future and scenario planning. And one of them was like this fractured state, fractured uh, society. And, and I was like, oh, there's no way that we're going to end up that fractured. And, and here we are. And it's like, it's, it's a really viable thing that, uh, We'll, we'll continue to see these deep cultural, political divisions that are separating us from each other and into these intractable positions. Uh, you know, there's people making, it's, it's outrageous, but these relatively logical arguments around the United States itself breaking up. And then we've already got kind of the, these, these meta societies that are the size of countries in some cases that are forming online, you know, communities that are essentially transnational and are uh, in some cases have large economies bigger than some countries. And, and, and so there's this whole notion of, you know, new, new sort of cyber states being formed. So paying attention to that, um, there's an awful lot of, uh, our struggles happening in space currently. And, you know, Trump launched, you know, the, the, the Space Force, and it was kind of this, you know, there were parodies made about it and stuff like that. But the military's actually taking it very seriously. And it's it was done for a reason. And, and there's a 
big push by by China to dominate space right now from a military perspective and, and the US is doing its arms race to kind of get things up and rolling there as well and be able to defend an attack. And so that's again, just this strange world. And then I also am tuned into, of course, you know, the stuff that's been at the center of so much of my commitment and focus over the past few decades, which is, of course, how are we doing in relationship to the future of humanity and the future of the environment? And I, I look at the tipping points that we're coming to environmentally and points of no return and just the way that we are setting ourselves up for a really kind of ugly future climactically and with the impact that we're having on on the biosphere i have fundamental faith in the future of life and the future of consciousness itself and from that extent you know we already are sustainable and what i mean by that is that you know humanity may really mess things up but we may prove that having a large frontal cortex is is not an evolutionary advantage and we may sort of get rid of ourselves inadvertently um, but life is going to continue to, to, to go forward and, and to flourish. And, and so there's a certain degree of calm that I have around that. And that's kind of only accessible if I can drop into mm -hmm. a much more sort of unity consciousness perspective and, and go, okay, well, I am, you know, but a face of what is arising here. So nonetheless, yeah, we have a responsibility to help shape a future that isn't as destructive. And a big part of that is like helping humanity to take care of itself. And how do we come up with all the jobs that will actually give people sustainable, not just sustainable livelihoods, but where they can flourish as, as humans. And so I, I don't see a whole lot of pathways forward with respect to that. However, I also have enough humility around the giant complex adaptive system that is humanity and, and the economy that there's so many pathways to possible futures that we can't even see it or imagine now. And so it's very much about a baby steps approach. So hope that wasn't that's, too that, depressing. Yeah, that's, a, that's a lot to worry about, Barrett. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm going to ask you where you still see hope. You know, oh, just to to balance it out, or at least give yeah. a little bit of pushback yeah. on all those well, worries. Yeah, yeah. So, so I fundamentally hold a perspective of mm. things are getting better, things are getting worse, and things are always already perfect. And by perfect, I don't mean it's the perfect world that we want, but that the system has produced exactly what it's been designed to produce, if it, meaning things are what they are because of the choices that we've made in the past. And there's a certain degree of kind of relaxation in that, this recognition, this is just simply what is. So yes, a lot of the things I mentioned, things are, are getting worse in those domains and things are also getting better. I also see, uh, I mean, things are getting better in, in phenomenal ways with respect to the, it, the collaboration that's happening around addressing environmental issues and addressing social justice issues. And there's the bird back. 
and uh, you know the <laughs> that's great yeah right and 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 so like you can also pretty systematically look across the good news that's happening on a technological front and on a sort of a, a, a workforce front and in the way humans are relating to each other there's there's lots of really rich growth and development happening out there so and then just to, I have a lot of faith in humanity's ability to, to adapt and pivot and grow. And for that, um, I, it's easy to access gratitude. And so, yeah, there's a lot of things that are bad out there and a lot of things that are good. And I think that we have a, it's easier to tune into the bad stuff. And our brains are trained, of course, mm -hmm. to take bad stuff more seriously because when we're you know, evolving on the savanna, uh, out in the bush, if we assume that the lion, or if we assume that the rock was a lion, we were mm -hmm. more likely to survive. And those that were super optimistic and just assumed the rock was a rock were, were eaten. And and so um, we're, we're, we're hardwired to, to pay closer attention to the negative. And so you know, part of conscious engagement with the world is to actively pay close attention to the positive that's arising as well, so that we mm -hmm. can be a broader uh, truth of what's happening. Yeah. No, thanks. I'm curious um, to hear your answers to those questions. Like how <laughs> many things you're worried about. At, as, another, as another time. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Um, and I, I think our listeners know a little bit. I mean, I, I um, yeah, you know, if they listen to all 73 so far, they, they get some sense of where I am. Beret, I, I would like to, to go somewhere else. Um, music is very important uh, to me um, mm -hmm. in, in my life. And so I always have a question around music as well. If I ask you uh, to mention a song or a piece of music that best embodies what you are about, which song or piece of music would that be? Well, let me speak to one and then probably another as well. There's a, there's a great song that I have paid close attention to during this particular period around COVID. And it's called, Please Don't Live in Fear. It's P-D-L-I-F is actually the, the title of it. And I'm pretty sure it's by Bonnie just looking it up right now. And it is, uh, a song that really has has touched me in some important ways because of the just the, the fundamental invitation to recognize that we are not our fears. And while fear can be a healthy companion and is not necessarily going to go away, we have an opportunity, I have an opportunity to not be driven by it, to not be reactive to it, to take the insight of its wisdom, to accept its invitation to be aware of danger and to nonetheless step forward into possibility, into hope, into love. And so, you know, it doesn't sound like 
super inspiring song to, that represents the essence of, of who I am. But I think that it's it, it's it's good, and it's by Bonnie there, B O N space I V E R, and then another song that deeply that I really like a lot. That's also a recent song is is Bob Dylan's song, I Contain Multitudes. Mm -hmm. And that song speaks into just the diversity and irony of the many different aspects of who we are. And how each of those, again, have their own truth and have their own wisdom that they're offering and how we don't need to be these completely coherent people that had everything organized and aligned and and uh that we really that it's actually okay to show up as this messy critter in a lot of ways that uh there's a certain degree of kind of relaxation around that as opposed to this uh atman project of trying to be mm. this sort of cartoon version of this perfect integrated being that is you know like where it's got all you know all the stuff is figured out and you know, that 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 idea is is equally applicable to society right we we have this sort of vision of a future we all want right which is in total harmony and there's no pain no destruction no suffering and we may find that actually the mature move going forward is to rest into a recognition of what is now, which is this vast combination of light and dark and of the good and the bad and, and things getting worse and things getting better. And that the diversity of that as maddening and crazy making as it can be, it's ultimately maybe more representative of the foundational nature of consciousness itself. No, th thank you so much. I, 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 before I forget, I would like to remind the listeners and, and I'm sharing this with you as well is that so I've asked this question to all my guests and uh, there is a playlist now on Spotify. Well, Spotify doesn't have a good name at the moment, uh, but, uh, you know, where all the songs that are chosen by my guests uh, are added to that particular uh, playlist called hashtag walk, talk, listen. So these two songs will be added to that as well. You know, from classical music to, to hard metal um, you know, sambas, uh, name it. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, I, I listen to it actually often because it reminds me of, of, uh, how fortunate I've been that, uh, you know, I'm able to talk with people like you. So, so, uh, uh, that's just great. Let us, let us, um, let me piggyback on, you know, what you were mentioning about, you know, what we are all striving for. And that's, you know, for me, uh, I'm happy with the 17 sustainable development goals that we have developed as a world that we came up with. It's far from perfect. There are probably too many, um, but at least we had discussions about, you know, what is important. So uh, we have 17 goals that we uh, agreed upon as a world, you know, goal one, end poverty, goal two, end hunger, name it. Um, if I ask you um, to 
you know, to share something with the listeners about the SDGs, what would that be? What, what do you want the listeners to know about the Sustainable Development Goals? That they're possible. I absolutely have lots of confidence that we can pull them off. And I have watched multi, large-scale multi-stakeholder groups move toward and accomplish very significant objectives. And so, for example, I, I worked in, in the Netherlands, as you know, Maurice, for a number of years working with the Dutch Sustainable Trade Initiative. And that organization was a foundation focused on mainstreaming sustainability into global supply chains, specifically in agri-commodities like coffee, tea, cocoa, tropical timber, et cetera. And the organization and what it built was phenomenal because they literally, we were able to bring together multinational companies, governments from the North and South, NGOs, academia, and media, and essentially build large-scale programs to the tens of millions of euros that literally drove significant progress in these global supply chains. So for example, we did a program that trained 250,000 Kenyan tea pluckers to become certified in Rainforest Alliance practices, agricultural practices, and Rainforest Alliance is, you know, is a certification agency. And so more environmentally sustainable farming practices for these tea pluckers. And that enabled Lipton, which is a brand by Unilever, of course, to change its entire supply chain for the production of Lipton over to sustainably certified tea. And that was a huge, huge move if you think about Lipton's overall impact and the, the amount of sort of global flow of tea that that it's it's involved in. And and so we did the same thing in in West Africa with respect to the production of of, of cocoa for, for, for chocolate, where we were aligned around producing 20 million tons of sustainably certified cocoa. Oh. And the, so this organization, I, I left them a decade ago, but they've gone on to become the preeminent global supply chain organization in the world and are deeply entwined with the World Economic Forum and, and countries in the North and South can contribute to the to the programs and stuff like that. It's It's quite, remarkable. And, and I guess one of the reasons why I have so much faith is because this was the coming together of many organizations and people that had vastly different motivations, worldviews, po political perspectives, but they aligned around these targets. And so, for example, we were able to accomplish these 20 million tons of sustainably certified cocoa because we allowed the different players to be there for their own reasons. There wasn't a need for people to be any different than they already were. So very practically, that meant that the businesses were there for their own interests. Governments were there for their own interests, even if they were, in the case of Cote d'Ivoire, uh, even if they were there for quite egocentric, political-driven, uh, like the, we need to do this to stay in power uh, reasons but we needed them at the table and, and they were engaged and got engaged. And, and it wasn't about hammering them to, to be anything other than, than they were, but about you know, using the influence that they had to actually open up the supply chain and access to the, to the supply chain. 
and the NGOs were there for reasons and the academia were there for their reasons. And, and it, uh, it worked and mm-hmm. it continues to work. And so I leave uh, exceptionally confident that it's possible. Now, are we gonna face intractable issues? Do we have real hardcore wicked problems like uh, you know, corruption? I mean, Ukraine's not in the EU, it's not in NATO because of corruption, basically, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Zelensky is this sort of hero right now, but if you if you look at the news on Zelensky a month ago, he's got these major members of his party that were just busted for bribery. Um, so it, 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 it's uh, or at least a member. I can't speak to multiple members. And so yeah, we've got wicked problems that do need to be addressed, and nonetheless. I have huge faith in the power and potential of humanity's ingenuity and creativity and capacity to focus and marshal resources toward addressing wicked challenges. And we may fail on some of them, and that may be the end of us ultimately. But I, 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 do, I do believe that there's a lot more potential to be unleashed across humanity especially quite frankly, as we are put into these crucible periods of needing to focus resolutely on crisis situations and do something about them. We tend to do better in crisis than, than dealing with longer term challenges. I, I, I like hearing positive stuff. So, so uh, thanks for, for sharing that. Any last message, invitation, or question for the listeners from you? I would invite listeners to really be curious about the potential of who they can become and who the powers that they're capable of accessing in service of helping to bring about a more flourishing family relationship, community engagement, impactful career. And because, I mean, it's such a cliche to say we have all this potential, but cliches are cliches because they tend to be true. And we're seeing. It, from the science that's coming in, from a, uh, the neuroscience that's coming in, the quantum research that's uh, that's happening, the uh, trauma research that's happening, the advances that are happening in, in therapy, that we just have sort of phenomenal capacity. And it is uh, super exciting to think about how we can tap into that in service of being of deeper service. And I just deeply encourage people to explore ways that they can unlock greater capacities of mind and heart so that they can be more real, more, more here, more, more, more powerful, more engaged, 
while at the same time, and this is the tricky piece of this, not falling into some sort of hyper-masculine, controlling, judgmental, I need to be this perfect superhuman uh, move that is just about, you know, denying the the idiosyncrasies and, and limitations of the current self and just rejecting those and being harsh to those and, and, you know, rejecting people that aren't trying to change themselves, right? There's all these sort of pathological expressions of the, uh, the striving for becoming more of ourselves that we can fall into. There's all sorts of pitfalls along the way where we can hurt people and hurt others. And, I, and I've messed up uh, lots of aspects of my own relationships with this sort of like quest along the way. So I've been deeply humbled and I just want to point out that side of it as well. Right. But fundamentally, yeah, uh, there's just this invitation to lean into and relax into the deeper potential of, of who we are because of the beauty and the authentic, healthy power hmm. accessible within our bodies, within our mind, within our hearts, within kind of the essence of who we are as as spirit, as consciousness, you know, as as God, whatever people's belief systems is. There, that larger self uh, wants to and is capable of flowing through us much, much, much more deeply. Barrett, thank you so much for your willingness to uh, talk with me. Um, you know, share your knowledge, uh, experience. Um, so, yeah, th thank you for everything you do. So, so uh, it was a pleasure. Maurice, I am deeply grateful and appreciative of you creating this space to share with your listeners the your your own wisdom, the insights and potential wisdom of your network. And if anything that I've said has resonated with you or your listeners, I would just invite them to remember that it's their own inner wisdom that's recognizing that. And if anything that I've said just mm. seems like silliness, uh, let it be silliness and drop it and, and move on. But that when we hear things that other people say that strike a profound chord with us it's not that that person has sort of some gift that they're bringing through to us but it's rather that our own knowing our deeper awareness is yes yes mm -hmm. i know that at a very profound level and that person just happens to have spoken and so to act upon them Thank you for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.